Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Ruby Hammer, MBE, the makeup artist. She's launched various brands in the beauty space over the last 30 years and has won every award you can possibly imagine. What I love the most about Ruby is her energy, her positivity, her can-do attitude, her work ethics, and her enthusiasm. She's just genuinely an amazing person you want to spend time with. In today's episode, Ruby will talk about how her parents' unconditional love injected fearlessness and courage into her, how she managed to cope with really dark days in her life, and how she confronts even the most difficult situation heads-on. Ruby, you are such an incredibly successful and inspiring person in your field. Before we talk about all your incredible success, I would love to hear where you grew up and how it was like. Well, I wasn't born in this country, which is the UK. I was born in Nigeria. Uh, my father, my late father was a doctor and Nigeria had just been given their independence by the UK and they needed doctors and lawyers and all sorts of, you know, infrastructure. And he went out there uh, for a one-year contract And my mum was seven months pregnant with me. I was born there, lived there for 12 years. And they obviously fell in love with that country and didn't leave <laughs> after a year. They stayed. I have two brothers who were born successively after me. And then we came to this country when we were on vacation. I was 12 and I'm from Bangladesh, I say now, but at the time it was East Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So we were on holiday here having a fantastic time and suddenly you get to hear that my father hasn't got a job in Africa anymore. We're going to go home to East Pakistan, but there's civil war breaking out oh, there. Wow. And so he, you know, there's five of us. We can't go anywhere, you know, with my parents and things. So we stayed in this hotel in Marble Arch. Wow. Months on end, months. Literally, <laughs> it was so much fun for us because growing up, <laughs> I had no television, no nothing. We just had to amuse ourselves with climbing trees and playing games and reading and comics and things like that. So it was really, really joyful. And then eventually the war wasn't ending quick enough, so my father got a job bought a house in Putney, which is the suburbs here in the UK, put us in school. And you know what? This has been home ever since. So. <laughs> wow. What an international upbringing. How did it influence you until today? Oh, my God. I think it has had the most deepest and profound influence on me in that I must have a little seed of my parents' pioneering spirit that they left their country, which was East Pakistan in the 60s, to go to Africa at the times when, you know, no one was going out there. Mm. And then to be born and then put our roots again in Europe wow. in the 70s. So I have to say it's made me a little bit fearless in that what you think is what's very important is those you love, you know, their well-being mm. and if they're with you. My father always used to call us the nuclear family. So as long as we were together, it doesn't really matter which house, which country, what job, what you're earning. It's just about being safe and well and getting on with it. You know, life life is like that. So I would say it's had a most profound effect on me. And it means that I, I kind of call myself a global citizen, that I am of Asian background, born in the continent of Africa, 
residing in <laughs> Europe where my formative intellectual years and everything that's a, a major part of my personality has been formed here. Mm. And I've worked as a makeup artist, so I've had a huge chance to travel to the other continents. And deep, deep down, that makes me a global citizen, really. You know, so that that's what I feel I am. Wow, I love the point about the nuclear family and you being fearless, having courage. Um, I mean, what a journey. That's that's really, really impressive. And how was it like to be in the UK, age 12, in the 70s? It was, it was really funny because when I first went to school and I went to a comprehensive school and it was a mixed co-ed school and my brothers one of them went to a comprehensive school just for boys and my youngest brother went to he was the cleverest one of all of us he went to a grammar school so we all went to three different schools and I remember it was more about fitting in to you, you do try and fit in and everybody sat there quietly where in Africa as soon as an adult entered the room we stood up We would, did not speak until we were spoken to. And here in this comprehensive school, <laughs> people are rude to their teachers. They speak amongst themselves. And it took me a good two years where there'd be my friends would be holding onto my jacket at the back of me because it was instinctive. A teacher went in the room and I'd stand up and they'd burst, <laughs> <laughs> and they'd burst out laughing, going, Ruby, sit down. You're making us all look bad. <laughs> no. That's funny. And and my mum and I'd come home and I'd say, Mum, they're so rude. They talk back to their teachers. And my mum would say, ignore them. You just do the way you've been brought up. You do not reply back to a teacher. You put your head down and you listen to what they say. They are your gurus. They're your teachers. You have to have respect and, you know, all of that. But after a few years, I was the same as everyone else, you know, like, my PE teacher riding his bicycle and I'd go, sir, sir. And he'd go, yes, Ruby. And I'd say, your back wheel's going round, sir. And he'd look <laughs> and trip over and fell down. You know, I was doing things like that. So <laughs> I fitted in quite easily. <laughs> Amazing. And how, how did your parents find it, you know, to get new jobs in the UK, to build, you know, a life in the UK? How was well, that like? my mum was always a housewife, you know, so she or Hausfrau, when I learned Germany, German, that's what I Very realized. good, yeah. Yeah, I said, my mum is, meine Mutter is Hausfrau. Wow. And, and my father is doctor. Very <laughs> so impressive. He he got this job and it was quite tough, Timo, because it was in the 70s where a lot of doctors had come from Uganda Asian doctors, because they'd just been kicked out of that. And we came from Nigeria, so we were not... Ugandan as such, but there was an influx of doctors. So in London, you had to, after every year, you had to find another position. So eight months into a job, he would be looking to interview to get another job because we only had residentship. We were allowed to stay here because the country was in civil war, but we were not refugees but we were not citizens. That came a lot later after it was proved that my dad had money. We'd never gone on the dole. He, he bought a house here, so he'd invested in, in the UK. We were in school. So gradually, we were invited to become citizens and have our British passport. And Bangladesh allows us dual nationality. So in the end, we kept both passports, Nigerian one, uh, not Nigerian one, sorry, Bangladesh one. We had to give up the Nigerian one and um, have the British passport. So it was quite profound for them too, but The thing is, they were law-abiding citizens. They, he was ambitious. He pushed himself as far as he could. But you still retained your own heritage. But we fitted in. We could speak the language. We could, we could adapt. We liked our foods. We kept your religious practices. But we were adaptive. And we were proud to be here. And um, it was a joyful time. And, and to be honest, I have my Asian heritage, but... I'm British, you know, this is my home. Where would I go? My parents now, I've lost both of them. My father 15 years ago, my mother nine years ago, they're buried in the UK. This is our home, you know. 
I have a very different story, but I feel very much the same. I've only lived here for 12 years, but I do feel like this is my home culturally. I feel like I'm British and I've got a passport, uh, despite the thick German accent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's very, It's. I was going to say sexy, but I don't know what you look like immediately. And I was thinking, but it, I like that accent. I think it's, it's good as long as you're clear when you speak English, but you do it with your own little tilt and hilt. It's very, very nice. You're very, very being nice. very generous and kind. And so I guess you learn work ethics, um, you know, focus or, or being driven from your dad and um, having to hustle when he came, switching jobs a lot. That must have influenced you a lot. It, it did, but it also showed you that stability doesn't come from a job. Do, do you know what I mean? You have mm -hmm. to make inside your head and heart you and the fact that you're not panicking and, nev and negative and seeing everything as a problem you you make that bit of a foundation you know a strong foundation is within you and our far and our my father my parents encouraged that in all of us like my father never discriminated about being an Asian parent you've got to imagine and a Muslim Asian parent I never had restrictions on me about my education, who I could go out with, how I could dress, what my ideas should be, that I could have a boyfriend or not have a boyfriend, you know, all of that. It was just you had to be a free, independent, moral, you know, you had to have some sort of moral compass that made you a better person than just following religion sheepishly or parrot fashioning what you've learned, he would encourage you to sort of think about it. Is that really what you believe in? And then, then stand by it. That's good. You know, even if you have discussion or you have arguments or you have whatever. So they showed that that bit of stability, build it within yourself, knowing you've got unconditional love. My family, my parents were wonderful in that they gave me that, that there's nothing I couldn't achieve as a woman being an Asian uh, or my age or whatever it was, they just felt if you were good and made the best effort, that's enough. And that should give you success. So I have that in me. I love that. Um, so powerful. So many people have limitations, um, self-imposed limitations, you know, constraints, demons. Um, so that's super powerful. I was just going to say that you've you've identified it in that way. And it really, it's only when gradually and with years go by that you, you speak to people on podcasts or interviews or whatever we were doing, that you realize what a great gift my parents had given me because they 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 shielded that in unconditional love. Do you know what I mean? It didn't come with T totally if you, you have to be educated this way or you have to be in this profession or you have to marry this person or this is the amount of income you should be having, then we can be proud of you. They were proud of us. They loved us and they allowed us to flourish within that. And that is a the biggest blessing. It really is the biggest blessing. Mm. And people who have surmounted that, I have even more admiration for because they didn't have the garden that I grew up in. Do, do you know what I mean? Such a powerful point. Yeah, no, to totally, totally. And I feel similarly blessed. My parents have always unconditionally yes. loved me. They've encouraged me. They've never been pushy. All kinds of ideas, me wanting to be a chef, me wanting to go into business. They've always just cheerleaded me and it's given me this, this belief and this trust in the world. Yeah, it's been, it's been um, I guess, a big part of the luck I've had in life. So I totally re relate to what you just said. I love that. I love that, what you said. And also, it doesn't mean you don't stumble and fall or there are not lessons to be heard or that you're only successful because you've come from this bed, you know, bed of, uh, of love. No, it just means that you learn to realise you should be encouraging to people and give them your honest opinion, but really champion who you can, when you can, with whatever little you can, because it's it's good to boost someone's dreams or hopes, but in a in not in a fake way, in a very, very transparent, practical, realistic way, but champion people's hopes and, and your own. 
because you need to give yourself hope, don't you? You can't just think, oh, yeah, <laughs> took a jolt there and that's it, give up. No. So all of that is it's very, very positive reinforcement without some, you know, you're not sitting in cloud cuckoo land either because that doesn't help either. You need to be aware of the real world, how it is. Yeah, I, I massively believe in positive psychology. So believing that every person has huge potential, they just have to unlock it or you know reframe, reframe a problem. I actually did a coaching diploma course last year and became a certified coach, not because wow. I want to coach people, but because I really, really love to find out what makes people tick and then help them unlock their potential. If I play the smallest possible role, it's just so fulfilling. Gusto today has a thousand, I don't know, 200 employees and just seeing what they achieve and, and you know, believing in them, cheerleading people, getting people to think differently about topics is, um, is just so much fun. So I love what you said. Listen, having you at the forefront, you know, I, I, you are more than a captain of their ship, but having you like that, Timo, means that those 200 employees have a real champion in them. And the fact that you took the trouble to go on a life coaching, you know, to take that time and effort, it means that not only are you able to find out about human nature and what makes people tick, but it, it, it kind of makes it clear to you how you might be ticking. Yeah, it does, absolutely, it? absolutely. It, it really does. So it's like when you say, what is education good for? It's not just about learning somebody else's viewpoint or this is how you have to do this or that. In the process, it sharpens and it widens. What do I believe in? It's just really, really powerful. And they're very lucky to have someone like you. Timo, at their forefront. You're being very, very kind and generous. and uh, But I do think what you just said is super powerful. Initially, I think you look at the other person, you look at the situation, the circumstances through coaching, I realized that half of the time, it's my belief system, system, my own values, my experiences that kind of shape the situation and that I need to think about you know, flexing a different style or being really aware of kind of my own issues because I'm kind of taking them into the conversation. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a powerful point. And going back to you in the 70s in the UK, what did you then study? I, my father was a doctor and he was an amazing doctor and a diagnostician. And he would he would not agree with a lot of what goes on now with just pen pushing and just pr prescribing Prozac to everybody and just, you know, take this and take that. And, you know, he would get to the root of the problems in a holistic way. But he was a medical doctor. So I just always thought I'd have a clinic with him and we'd, I'd be walking behind him with our big white coats. But when I started to do my O-levels, I realised, oh, my God, I'm useless at any of the science subjects. The only ones I love was biology. I'm no good at physics. I'm no good at chemistry. And I had to have a big old word with my dad and say, Dad, it doesn't look like I'm ever going to become a doctor because you need so much brains. I haven't got that. So I shifted to the social sciences and I've got my A-levels and then I went to university. I studied economics. So <laughs> it was I would have used it for something like maybe work in the embassy, you know, in the diplomatic service. So it would still involved with people, travel, and using my social economics or something like that. Or I could have tried to apply to somewhere like the UN because my late aunt, my mum's elder sister, used to work for the UN and she was at the headquarters in New York at the time. So it was that kind of thing. I thought, you know, I could do that, but as fate and luck took me to a different direction and as I finished my degree I met somebody who was met became my he was my boyfriend then became my first husband by fluke I got to assist his friend who was a makeup artist and my life took a completely different tangent I had love for makeup my whole life the passion was always there because I used to see my mum was a young woman you know she had me at 17 so she always kept up with all the fashions and all of that so all those 70s Gucci Pucci big goggle eye you know glasses and wigs and this and that so I had all of that inspiration sinking in and then this was an opportunity where I'd finished my degree and my father was adamant about 
doesn't matter what you study or are educated in, but you should take it to the limit of your capabilities. So to him, basic education is at degree level. And because I had graduated, I had achieved my diploma, he thought, okay, she can do something. She won't be starving. Then when I said, I'm going to assist, he said, okay, we'll try it for a few months, see how you go. Can you make a living from it? Can you not? And I just loved it so much. I set my goals to it. And every year he would ask, how is it going? And it just built on. And after three or four years, he didn't ask anymore. He knew that this is my goal now. And they just encouraged that. And they could see I found an agent, you know, I'm self-taught. I'm not formally trained in being a makeup artist. I just took it on, found an agent, did a lot of testing. You get better jobs. You And in those days, it's not social media or anything like that. I specialised in fashion and makeup in that era, not television and not uh, filmmaking or anything like that. And you could see I was making a living slowly, slowly, slowly. You can see my work in magazines, some of the best ones in the world. You can see you're traveling, you're doing campaigns in, you know, for big advertising things. You're doing editorial, you're working with good people in their spheres. So that was it. That, that I never did look back from that. And they never then said, oh, what are you going to do now? You know, it was like, okay, this is it. I'm on my plan. I'm on my plan. I'm on, I'm on the journey. So they just kept encouraging you to do more. And I had my little girl by then. So my mum was a very hands-on grandma and um, I had their support to be able to carry on in my career. You know, it was, just, it was and lots of luck, lots of luck. So, and hard work. <laughs> and so you always loved makeup, but serendipity after studying economics kind of got you into that profession. Yes. Um, was there like a day when you realized that you're actually succeeding? Um, it's really, I mean, obviously today you're hugely successful, but it must have been quite difficult and daunting at the very beginning. At the very beginning, it was daunting, Timo, because it's not a world that I know. I'm not particularly artistic. It sounds funny, like all the makeup artists I admire, like Linda Cantello or Pat McGrath or Di Kendall or all these other artists, and I apologise if I've left anyone out, there are numerous I admire. They're more, they were more artistic. You know, they might have gone to college and they did this and they did other things. Mine was very box standard. But I had that flair inside me, in my heart, you know. So it was daunting because you never knew anybody in the in the industry. And it was a very competitive industry. Uh, and so I didn't take it as a negative. It just, um, maybe I was just the naivety of youth. And I was so thrilled to have a foot in the door that I didn't think of it as though, oh, there might be other doors that are slamming without you even knowing, you know, whether it was a racism or whether it's, oh, she's Asian. There are not that, that many makeup artists like that. There weren't that many Asian models, let alone makeup artists, you know, at that time. But I didn't look at it that way, maybe in my naivety or, or somewhere I just didn't allow it to be a reason to say no. I would work harder. I would find ways. I practice more. So that somebody couldn't just say, oh, you're only good at doing brown skins or dark skins. I was able to show, no, I can do all skins. I love doing this. I love doing that. And gradually, when you start seeing your name, you know, appear in the credits, that I don't think there's ever one day where you suddenly wake up. Like, it must be the same for you, Timo. You don't, it's not just one day, because my career is over 30 years long. So there's not just one moment when you stand and you think, oh, I've arrived. It's, it's a sequence of little things that give you joy and you think, yes, I'm in good company. Oh, wow, they put me in the same vein as so-and-so. Oh, I'm working with this calibre of photographers. I got this rate for my advertising job. You know, those little things are the little successes that add up. Yeah, completely true. And um, at, at what stage did it start to feel like a business versus a, kind of a passion? And was there like a time when you moved from doing the work to, I guess, thinking more about what is it that I'm really great at? What can other people do? Like, talk me through kind of, I guess, the scaling of, you know, of the profession. Well, you know, to be honest, even now, I say I'm a jobbing makeup artist. 
that's what I love. It's not about brand and work because I worked when I started weirdly enough I worked front of house and back of house you know I would be a consultant to lots of other big brands like when Clarins first launched their makeup I was the makeup artist that they chose to train all their shop assistants you know that would end up on the department store floors then I did the same for like uh, Yves Saint Laurent or Estee Lauder or something like that so I did things educationally at the back and that gave you an insight to how brands think work whatever so I wasn't just a makeup artist that just did the makeup on the models on a shoot or for advertising or for editorial. I did these other things too because I was interested in them. Then again, another opportunity took me to do some television stuff. And I ended up being able to do live things on camera, you know, with like 10 Years Younger or Star Challenge or The Close Show or working with my ex-husband then that brought Aveda to this country as a distributor mm -hmm. and then marketing it, having staff, having to think of all other business or commercial issues. So I think maybe the, the economics, maybe just I'm commercially minded. You know, I have creativity, but I'm also not just an artistic genius in that way. I, I'm probably less of an artistic genius. I have creativity. I love it, but I've got that commercial bend to me. So I kind of did a lot of those things throughout my career, but it all came about from the doing of the makeup. So that then when it comes to doing Ruby and Millie, it was inclusive as a brand. It was diversive. It did shake up our industry in a way. And it, it wasn't just fluke. It, it was just being me being the way I am, you know, and I just tackled every area of my life in that same way. So it wasn't like, oh, I've stopped being a makeup artist doing the doing, I still today, if anyone's listening out there, that's what I love doing. So I think sometimes <laughs> people think I'm too grand for my, oh, no, she's just doing her brand. She doesn't do makeup anymore or she's far too expensive or she doesn't do, and it's not true. I, if I'm free, I still have a makeup agent. You're supposed to book me, please. But a lot of people, <laughs> yes, Amazing. I know, we've had COVID and has not been possible, but uh, that's still what I love doing and I love doing the other bits because that's where the seed has come from this love and then I tackle it the same way so I was lucky to do Ruby and Millie and work with a big corporation and look at it in different ways and then now I'm a startup again a seedling little company I don't have two hundred employees like you have there's only two of us permanently I'm an unpaid founder you know I just I just hope my business can sustain itself so that it can pay for her and then I I, I have PR and I have other consultants that I take on but that's it one day I hope to in the very near future to be able to have more and more and grow to the way that you have which is so so admirable and amazing and an inspiration to me which is wow when I read up about you or just did my own little bit of research I was like Oh my God, I can't believe I'm speaking to him. <laughs> <laughs> You're being incredibly kind. Um, and just on Ruby and Millie, which I think you started in 1996, what was the idea behind it? It, it Again, it was an opportunity that came to me. It's not something I went out looking for. It came to us through, through uh, you know, people seeing what we did at Aveda. And then uh, my ex-husband was having these chats with, with them at Boots because me and him were the sole distributors and owned the brand here in the UK. And they would say, oh, can we have a Vader? And he was like, are you kidding me? No, they're in Harvinicals, they're in department stores. We're not going to give it to Boots. You, you don't have that customer that can afford that brand. And anyway, in two or three years, you're just going to copy it and then make it cheaper and have it in there and then kick us out. We're not having that. So in those kind of conversations, it sort of diverged into a makeup artist brand and then my name came up and at that time Millie Kendall used to do the PR for us at Aveda you know we were the her only client so it just developed organically everything just came like that and then 1996 is when we officially 
just worked on it. It took two years to create the line. And we launched in 1998 in Harvey Nichols. And nobody knew that this was a Boots own brand. We didn't have the money, Timo. We didn't, we couldn't have had that money. They gave us seven million at wow. that time. Wow. To put, but it was a full-blown range. It was, I don't know, hundred and or two hundred and something skews, two hundred and thirty-five skews or so. And you know, we did everything: formula, merchandising, packaging, training the staff, guiding the PR, all the things. They just had to, they gave us the money and they were supposed to be our retailer. We were supposed to get them over that threshold into that store and they were supposed to do the retailing. So we were not in charge of warehousing or keeping the stock up or, or, you know, those kind of things, but everything else front of this side, that's what we did. And you learn a lot in doing that. You know, gradually, like I said, I picked up bits from all the clients I've ever worked for and I used my passion, my thought. I had a great partner in Millie that we could bounce off ideas from. And that's how we we launched something that hadn't ever been done before. And I don't think Boots have never done it since. And lots of people, like, it's very weird. Like, we are talking today, May the 12th. I don't know when you'll broadcast this podcast, but today is the day Zara Beauty globally has launched. And if you look at some of the packaging and some of the ethos behind it, I have to say there is so much synergy with the Ruby and Millie of old, thinking 20 years later, if we launched again today in some funny way, we'd probably do it a bit like they've done it. But we were way ahead of our time. So it, well, it, it still gives me, not with arrogance, but genuine pride to think, you know what, we did do something just by keeping true to our nature. You know, we just did what we knew or what I know, bouncing off of her, and we just did that. We, we didn't get sidetracked by, oh, my God, it's boots and it's got to be done this way. We had so many clashes with them about doing this and doing it this way and doing it, and we held our ground and where they were encouraging or where they could help us with, with our lack of experience and things, we absorbed it very nicely. You know, it was a, it was fantastic. It was fantastic while it lasted. <laughs> I love your passion, your enthusiasm, your positivity, <laughs> your energy, your authenticity. And I kind of feel like that's the nucleus of what you try to achieve. And that kind of got you where you are today. And obviously lot more absolutely and i'll give you two small examples about the boots thing i'll tell you one of them was we were doing foundations and we were allowed to do they said we can have six shades and i said are you kidding me well six shades i don't have anything that can go past olive uh, look at me i'm the founder and i'm the face of the brand and what when i go to the counter there'll be no foundation for someone like me or someone darker than me what the hell? Yeah. No, I'm not having that. And we had to argue and argue and argue. But in the end, yes, you know, and then that's what we got. 12 shades was like unbelievable in those days, whereas now you cannot be call yourself a big cosmetic brand or something like that if you don't have at least 42 shades. You know, that Rihanna from Fenty Beauty has put that as a mark. So that was one. And the second one was to show you where... We were the first ones to do this thing because it was it was our hero item was like a lip gloss and it was a click pen lip gloss. And it was an inner component of another product. But we stripped it down and used it for that. And they would say, because it had never been achieved before, and it was from Mitsubishi in Japan, the pen manufacturers. Mm. So you had that click thing. They were like, no, 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 this is not going to work. No. And I was like... Just because oh, the consumer doesn't know it, they don't know what they want till you give it to them in their hand. And then if you make their life easy, they'll realise, how, how could I have lived without this? So we had that level of sort of passion and strong ability to argue with them, to say, no, 
this is what I want. I don't want to be everything else that's out there. Well, what's the point of that? You're just going to put it in a different thing and be no seven. The whole point of this is not to be boots no seven. We have to do something today as much as we can that no one else has seen, you know, and we were able to do that. And and it is a bit of passion and a bit of naivety and a bit of like, we weren't frightened that they were boots, the chemists. We just, well, but like, it's got to be like this. Otherwise there's no point in doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. And I just want to ask a different question because you're like so successful. You've got so many awards. I can't even list them all, but it's really, really incredible. And you've achieved so much uh, over that time. But surely there must have been really dark days and it must have felt like really difficult at times. So I would love to hear, you know, the stories of when it actually felt really, really difficult for you. Do you know that one of the... Some people know it, but some, maybe more people know it now, than, but at the time they didn't. My darkest days, probably one of the darkest days of my time in the past, was at the time of Ruby Millie, the launch of that, because people didn't realise I was going through a horrendous divorce at the mm. time. And that part of trying to be the most creative at your, you know, I'd be crying in the shower and then having to get Aww. that train to go to Nottingham because Millie, my business partner at the time, was pregnant. So she couldn't do, you know, we, we, I was very uh, conscious of not letting her take long journeys or anything like that, whereas my daughter was a teenager, you know. So I was I was a mum, but I wasn't a young mum. So I wanted her to be rested and proper, and I would do those journeys. But And my ex-husband was in my business with me, but I couldn't stand to be in the same room with him at the same time and then those days. And people didn't realise how dark it was to be, yay, I'm doing this and I'm standing there with a beaming smile and not and encourage all this staff and all the press and all and my own self. But they were very dark, dark, dark moments. So for for everybody, it is an enormous success. For me, it's always, it's got a little bit of blood money in Ruby and Millie, you know, because I put everything in there and thank God I did. I I still didn't back off from giving it my all, but they were dark and they took its price on me emotionally in private. It did. The next time, probably, is when I lost my parents. You know, I, when you think divorce is the worst thing that could happen to you until you lose a parent. Mm. And my father had been sick for a long time, so he had Parkinson's. But when he passed away, we knew he was ill for a long time. So it's not expected, but it was going to happen. But he's still my father, my big champion. But by the time I lost my mum, which is in 2012, which is a big year for you, I know. Yes. But you can imagine for me, it was, I was 50 years old Mm. and I'd lost both parents. So you feel like you're orphan, Annie. You're an orphan, but you're a 50-year-old orphan. Mm. So it's, so that was also very dark and painful. Uh, And, but you deal, you deal and you go through the process and, You go through each of the steps of handling whatever is thrown at you. I I was never a person that hides like an ostrich. I am a great believer in confronting and addressing whatever it is, however painful, however ugly, however much of a mistake, and it's whatever it is. Oh, my God, I, I can't believe I did that. I made such a mistake. I'll just hide it. No, you have to address it and deal with it. And just the intention. I'm a great believer in intentions. And this is not just an Islamic or Muslim thing. I believe that it's a spiritual thing that if your intentions are right, then it'll bear the right fruit. And unfortunately, somewhere, the intentions of what happened at Ruby and Millie with whatever was my ex-husband or just the way the boots did it, it did it. That's why it doesn't exist today, because it was not a commercial failure. It's just that people didn't have that same vision. And you do need to have, you know, people in synergy with your vision or point. Not not just copy you, but if there's no synergy in just the philosophies, 
some things can't work, can it? Yeah, some somebody once told me, um, you know, brands don't die of starvation; they die of um, or they fail of of indigestion and and kind of you know that missing alignment around the vision, the purpose is lost, the passion is lost. Um, it's actually really really hard to maintain over a long time. Of course, because it takes so much energy. Like you know, one of the questions people must ask you, Timo, all the time to say, if we want to do a business and want to start a company, what do you do? And I'd sort of take a beat and I say, don't. <laughs> and they stood there, they're, they're shocked, going, what do you mean? What do you mean? And I'm like, I mean, really, it is going to take every ounce of resource that you have, financial, emotional, your physical, your mental, your all of those resources. So if you don't think you've got it enough to give to it at the outset and then sustain it, then don't do it because you're thinking, oh, I'm going to become, you know, it's not that. Give it a lot of thought and think this through and then realize that the journey is as important to you as the destination, then you will be a success. But don't just think, oh, I can make money or I can do this or I'll meet famous people or blah, blah, blah. And I think, no, it is not just when you create the seed but to sustain that, like you've just said, is really, really hard, if not even harder. Yeah, and I think the most fulfilling thing in the world is to create long-term purpose for yourself and, and long-term fulfillment, I guess, and not focus on, as you said, commercial success or awards or whatever it is. That's kind of the side um, product, I guess, if you're lucky. Um, yes. So when I launched Gusto, I literally focused on I love food. I love cooking. How do I make life better? Every single box we're selling is taking seven kilos of CO2 emissions out of the system compared to the wow. equivalent um, shop to the supermarket. So for me, I, I kind of felt like if I at least learn how to cook even better and I spend time on what I love, even if it fails commercially, I at least you know do what I love and then I get a job, a paid job um, at some point again. Exactly. Like, look, for me, I launched in September 2019. Imagine, who would know that while you're still doing your PR and, wow. I, <laughs> and then we had this whole year and a half of COVID, if not nearly 18 months of it, and touch wood, I'm touching wood. I, so am I. Yeah. Okay, I haven't gone bust in there. Lots of giants have been brought to their knees. So I'm just saying that is a success in itself isn't it so yes I'm not uh what's the word jumping and leaping and selling and I'm not bashing uh Kim Kardashian or Kylie Jenner or anywhere else but I'm surviving my products are doing good the little tiny things that we have done and they are the way I've thought about them the little magnetic brush that are so covid friendly now do you know what I mean I I saw them as something that would be useful for travel would be great in your desk would be hygienic but the, but now I realized my god again instinctively I created something that is so fantastic for now you know as mm -hmm. people will be able to travel as people will be able to go to work and even if they didn't do any of that just for a makeup artist or a normal person who uses makeup to be able to have something that's simple clear and hygienic and doesn't take up too much space and to be as sustainable and as I'm not 100% like that I don't claim to be but to do the best I can the planet while I'm here so I've just got small little bits and pieces that I'm adding and will do my you know I'll add things as and when I can afford it and as and when it's, it's right because at the beginning of that COVID, people don't realise our supply chains, our manufacturers in China or, or in America or wherever they were in the world, things I had in the pipeline, I couldn't continue. And I'm only a small person. So mm -hmm. my MOQs are only little. I, I'm not a big giant label or brand to them that they can, they're going to just airship things to be I just had to get in line like everybody else and that that chain took so many knocks that I can't you know but I'm still here 
I'm still looking forward to the new things I'm going to now be able to introduce to everyone once we get back to our new normality, as I call it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it will be a huge success. And somebody wise once told me that, um, Timo, you know, don't focus on success in terms of commercial success. Just don't lose your energy and don't run out of money ever. And then uh, good things will happen. And I feel like, um, you know, I'm sure that situation will apply to, to your business now. And obviously, it's been a really difficult year. But uh, it does feel like we're going back to normal and there is light at the end yes, of the tunnel. Yes, yes. And that I get such good feedback now from our customers, our press, bits on social media, because that's what I've had to put attention to. It, it's not second nature to me, the social media bits, but I do it my way. So it's without filters. It is me as I am. And I call it unapologetically me. So... And I think that's I, I what just, people will love and that's what people want. That's the brand. And it is small compared to other commercial brands. But you know what? I'm very proud of what I've done. And it is still, the link is not broken. It's like it's like what you're doing now. It comes from your love of food. And then to prepare that food, you have to cook it. But then you're thinking, how do I cook it in a way that's sustainable and good for the planet and everybody else too? You see, but it all comes from if you didn't like food, you couldn't fake a love of food, could you? You could learn all the other aspects of it, how to be a better chef, you know, how better recipes, better this, better that. Somebody else could show you that. But that bit in your heart and in your gut, I love this. Who can give you that? And this we have to keep generating and feeding that energy for ourselves. And that's what I do. And I, I think this is my biggest takeaway from, from our conversation so far. It's your courage, but then it's your passion, enthusiasm, positivity, energy, authenticity that got you to where you are. And that's kind of the nucleus of the brand. And that's really exciting. And it's coming across so much when you talk. I'm literally Thank smiling you. the entire time. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, but I feel like I'm talking to a fellow fellow um I don't know what to call you a fellow founder in that way that someone who has that will understand that like at the moment uh, I don't pay myself a salary because I can't afford to but I get a boost from doing this and saying I'm still going to go ahead and I'm going to do it my way and people it resonates with people and if for some reason god forbid god forbid because i'm also realistic i don't want to i'm coming up to 60 i don't want to be homeless or worried about oh my god where the next meal is going to come from uh i have a adult daughter maybe i might become a grandmother you know in the near future i want to do other parts of my life so i didn't want to just take on a huge big brand the way it was with ruby and millie that would be all consuming mm. and i couldn't give back to my own life things like look i've been divorced after being married for 15 years i am very lucky that i have another wonderful husband and love in my life i you need to learn lessons from that before so i i i won't make my personal life can't be a casualty of what I'm trying to do at work. I would love to be a grandma the way my mother was for me so that I can support and encourage my daughter to be the young woman and live her life the way she should, the way my mum allowed me in my 20s and 30s to be able to come to where I am now. I don't want to not be able to pay the people I work with, whether they're the suppliers or my partner and, you know, my, I call her my CEO, my brand person. I just call her everybody that isn't Ruby Hammer. <laughs> Liana Soff is my right hand, left hand, everything. I want to be able to be able to pay her and, you know, like not do it in a wrong way. So I'm way smaller than you in scale, but the ambition is there, you know, it is there. I'm not without that drive to see I'm going to take it further and take it as far as I can. And if it means taking on a bit more investment at that time to do right by the time of what that business needs, then I hope I'm able to just have the clarity to do the right thing, because that is my intention. I want to do what's right 
for the brand, for the planet, but not shortchange myself. And I'm honest enough to say I have got huge energy and passion, but sometimes you can't do everything and you have to choose what you want to put that energy towards, you know. I love that point. And just as a final question, how do you sustain your own energy level? Like what, you know, what do you do to kind of make sure you're constantly performing at your best, being being happy, positively leading your team, I guess? What do you personally do? The first thing is, like I said, right at the beginning when we started chatting, I have that bed of unconditional love that my parents instilled in me, that you are good enough, Ruby. It's okay. You're good enough. You could fail. You could do this, but you're good enough. So from that bed, I, I nourish the things where I try to eat properly. I try to, I've come late to exercising because I was always very, very thin and didn't need to worry about what I looked like in clothes. But now I realize it's for your inner health and well-being. You need to exercise. I have always done a little bit of meditation. I do a bit more of that. I believe in being grateful. I'm a, I'm a person that doesn't look at the negatives first. I, I, I choose what I'm grateful for and say, okay, this is what I've got. Oh, that isn't working there. Let's see what we can do to address that part. Do you see what I mean? So it's not that I'm a saint and I don't get annoyed and I don't lose my temper because I am quite short-tempered, but it just comes out, then it's dealt with. Is addressed. And I will just nourish all the bits of that, whether it's by reading or relaxing or surrounding yourself with your loved ones, asking proper questions and be prepared to listen that it may not be what you want to hear, but take something from that and nurture yourself. So I don't feel guilty about trying to be superwoman anymore, but I just... I'm kind to myself like I would be to my best friend or to somebody who is a stranger that asks something and I'm actually able to help I tried to say what would you do if you did that for somebody else can't you do that a little bit for yourself as well and and that's the only way I do it and it changes day by day sometimes it's giving yourself a lot sometimes it's just a tiny little bit sometimes it's just waking up and feeling myself and saying I'm alive I'm well I'll do my best today and that's it what else can you expect or hope for or, or want from life I, I love the focus on gratitude and self-appreciation or self-love um that's really really powerful ruby thank you so much i loved our conversation and i'm hugely inspired by your success but even more by who you are as a person it's been really really fun thank you Thank you, Timo. It's been my real honor and I wish you every, every success. And hopefully one day I can meet you and we can have uh, something together. It would be, it would be amazing. It'd be amazing. I love what you've achieved. And especially in this COVID times, what, what you've brought to people and, and the business model you've created. But again, from that seed within yourself. So I applaud it and I encourage you and I send you my best wishes. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>